Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Dan Kilbride. I'm the host of New Books in American Studies, and I also write, teach, and publish on early American history at John Carroll University outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Today, we are joined by Jason Sokol, who's an assistant professor of history at the University of New Hampshire, and we're going to discuss his book, All Eyes Are Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, The Conflicted Soul of the Northeast, which has just been published by Basic Books. Uh, Jason, welcome to New Books in American Studies. Thanks, man. Happy to be with you. So you've written uh, pretty extensively on civil rights. Uh, Your first book uh, was called There Goes My Everything, White Southerners in the Age of Civil Rights. Uh, That came out in 2006. So uh, how did you get interested in civil rights history, and what brought you from your first book to this book? Well, I've always been interested in race in America from a young age. I grew up in the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, which um, has a large population of racial minorities. And I just think ever since I was young, I was interested in trying to understand this, um, the obvious inequities between the races that I saw every day. And when I got uh, old enough to study these things in a serious way, and when I first started reading about civil rights, uh, I was hooked. Um, So for me, the first place to go to understand race in America was the South, which is why I wrote my first book on the South. But I was also the whole time puzzling through and thinking about the um, issues of, of race in the North and how to understand that history. So as soon as I was done with the first book, I had an idea of what I wanted to explore next. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't know you were from Springfield. That uh, makes a lot of sense, given that you spend a lot of time in the book <laughs> talking about Springfield. Uh, so this must be very close to your heart. Um, so this book does focus on you know the northeastern United States, specifically New England. Um, and one of the things you talk a lot about, not just the introduction, but throughout the book, is something that you call the, the northern mystique. Right. Can you just describe for our listeners what you mean by that? Most basically, it's, I think it's the notion that northerners and specifically northeasterners have had uh, the notion they've had that, that their states and their cities have historically served as a beacon to the nation, going back to the days of the Revolutionary War and the, uh, even further back to the Pilgrims and then to the abolitionists, where Northerners have believed that they, that they have a sort of noble history and that their states are the home of racial progress and political liberalism and cultural enlightenment. And I say that, you know, this isn't all a myth, that there's something to it. Mm -hmm. And that at certain points during the time period I study, the 12th century, at certain points, that belief about the North has helped to propel 
white northerners uh, to a place where they could forge actual advances in racial equality and in democracy. Of course, at the same time, I show how northerners and northeasterners have used that mystique as a mask, as a way to obscure and excuse the blatant patterns of racial segregation and the episodes of violent racism that have cropped mm-hmm. up throughout this history. So I argue that the, the mystique is a powerful thing and that it's been deployed both ways by white yeah. northerners. How, how deeply do you think that that mystique penetrated into the northern population? I mean, I'm sure, for example, that uh, you know the more educated and affluent northerners, the cosmopolitan people sort of bought onto this idea that, that the north was better and more progressive. Right. But let's say the people who are on the ground, who are, say, going to be affected by busing, right. whose kids went to public school, how deeply do you think this notion of a mystique penetrated into this sort of Archie Bunker population of the North? Right. It's a good question. I think perhaps it didn't penetrate quite as deeply, but it was still there. I mean, I have a quote from Louise Day Hicks in the introduction to the book, and Louise Day Hicks was, of course, the head of the Boston School mm-hmm. Committee and the leader of resistance to integration in Boston, and she said, I know I'm not bigoted. That means all the Southern stuff (laughs) that revolted me. And you find similar um, kinds of stories in the book Common Ground by J. Anthony Lucas, where he he tracks the the family of the McGoffs, the very poor family of Charlestown. And um, the mother in that family at one point says that, you know, she thinks Martin Luther King was 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 right to wage all the struggles that he waged in the South, but, mm-hmm. but what is he doing up in Boston? You know, we don't have we don't have those those kind of segregation troubles up here. So I think what when I talk about the mystique, it, it is a thing that applies probably most powerfully to the to the leaders, but but it also filtered down and, and, and trickled down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, well, um so you know you spent a lot of time on the city of Springfield, and uh, at, at one point in the book you you refer to Springfield as uh, a touchstone uh-huh. for race relations in the immediate post World War II era, and this is specifically in reference to what was called at the time the quote unquote Springfield Plan. Can you discuss you know what makes Springfield uh, besides the diversity that you already mentioned, and regarding the Springfield Plan, what makes it such a touchstone? Well, the city of Springfield, starting in 1939-1940, came up with this program called the Springfield Plan, where the leaders of the city, and specifically the leaders of the schools, public schools, claimed that they would abolish all racial and religious prejudice from people in Springfield, starting with, with the students in the public schools. And... I think this captured something important about the spirit of uh, America during World War II, which is that a lot of people looked at the, a lot of uh, leading whites in America looked at the problem of race, basically a problem of attitudes, 
mm-hmm. as something where, you know, they saw Hitler's Nazi Germany overseas, obviously a racist regime, and they saw segregationist leaders down south, and they said, you know, what we have to do is is wipe out that kind of prejudice from our minds, and if we can only do that, then we will solve America's race problem. And so I think the, the Springfield plan with its focus on abolishing racist attitudes and abolishing prejudice and its focus on white minds was um, symbolic of this larger belief among many white Americans that, that that's what they had to tackle first. And the thing about the Springfield plan is that the leaders overlooked patterns of spatial segregation uh, in in the city and, um, you know, didn't really see that, well, you could try to root out attitudes, didn't do anything about the structures underlying those attitudes, then you had problems on your hands. Right. Um, you know, I mentioned at, at the onset of this podcast that you know, I'm not an expert on uh, 20th century American history, uh, on the contrary, but w- uh, once in a while I've, uh, I've, I've had, you know, like many people, I, I teach sort of outside of my specialty sometimes. And uh, one of the books that I've used when I taught civil rights is, is a, a book by Robert J. Norrell called Reaping the Whirlwind, which is about the civil rights movement in Tuskegee. Right. And I came across an article of his once that made a powerful impression on me as, as somebody who was trying to make sense of this era. And he, he did make the argument in this article, which I can no longer find, that uh, World War II and the, especially the experience of fighting uh, racist regimes, both in Europe and in the Pacific, uh, deeply impressed upon many Americans uh, you know, the the hypocrisy of uh, Jim Crow at home. You know, fighting for democracy abroad while maintaining Jim Crow at home. And I have to admit, I, as somebody who's not a specialist on this era, I've always it you know it made logical sense to me. Right. But I never really had the you know expertise to say, yeah, that actually happened. And to, to what extent do you think that fighting the Nazis, fighting the Japanese, actually did awaken at least some Americans to? Uh, what they were doing to you know people of African descent? Well, I think what it did is it made it made ever more apparent that gap between American ideals and American practices, specifically with regard to segregation and and racism. So I think it's true that it did wake a lot of people up. Um, in my book on the South, though. I found that some white Southerners were transformed by fighting in the war or, or even by understanding that there's a war against racism. The large majority of white Southerners were not interested in taking those lessons of the war and applying them to the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. I, I think what's probably more true is that it provided a spur to action for African Americans and encouraged you know, the membership ranks of the NAACP grew wildly during and after mm-hmm. World War II, and it emboldened, specifically emboldened black veterans to lead voting drives and become more uh, more aggressive in their um, actions for, um, for African-American freedoms. And, of course, the most famous black veteran was Jackie Robinson, who I right. write about yeah. in my second mm-hmm. chapter. That's right. Um, I, I have to admit that, that I, I, I thought of that article by Norell a couple of days ago when I was reading an uh, uh, interview with uh, the comedian Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. 
in which Chris Rock said that he was very grateful that his daughters were growing up in a society in which white people were <laughs> as uncrazy as they had ever been. And not that they are still not crazy, but they were as less crazy as they were. And I wondered, you know, I've always been uncomfortable in kind of teaching that argument by Norell because I always felt, wow, I'm giving too much credit to the white people here. Right instead of the black people who were fighting. But I wonder if the struggle for civil rights would have been as successful as it was if white people had not been, you know, more amenable to hearing people out or at least less comfortable with using the kind of terroristic tactics that you see during Reconstruction and see during the early 20th century. So, you know, it, it just seemed that it had there, there had to be something going in both ways, that white people had to be changing but people of color had to be changing as well. Yeah, I think it did but, both. Uh, and I think that, you know, it, I think for racial change to have in America, you needed aggressive action on the part of African-Americans and you needed a white society that was perhaps slightly more willing to recognize those actions. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you already mentioned Jackie Robinson. So uh, why don't you talk about that chapter in which you, uh, you know, describe uh, Ebbets Field as the kind of the, the seat of American democracy. Because, um, you know, Jackie Robinson is somebody who probably uh, ordinary people, uh, you know, can identify with and, and, and see as a kind of touchstone for civil rights. But one of the things you talk about in your chapter is the the, the other side of Jackie Robinson's uh, right. civil rights struggles, especially his problems getting an apartment and buying a house. Right. Well, I, th this chapter explores Brooklyn during the decade that Robinson played for the Dodgers, which was 1947 to 57. And what I try to do is tell two warring stories together, which is, in essence, what I try to do in the book overall, which is tell the story of racial democracy in the Northeast alongside the story of racial segregation and try to understand how the two could exist basically. And so in Brooklyn, in 1947, Robinson broke the color barrier and a vast majority of whites in Brooklyn were willing to welcome him, to welcome him to the team. Mm -hmm. And they saw, you know, they saw themselves and they saw their borough as the, the center of interracial democracy in America. You know, this is 1947. So Americans had not yet heard of Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks. So Brooklyn was the place where it was happening. And whites in Brooklyn were happy to embrace that, that idea. At, you know, at the time, they were not happy to embrace African Americans as neighbors uh, or uh, send their white children to school at uh sit beside African Americans in their classrooms, and even Robinson himself, as you say, he had trouble getting an apartment in Brooklyn, and then I, then I detail when he tried to buy a home in the Connecticut suburbs, and he faced, uh, he faced all, all sorts of housing discrimination <laughs> firsthand. So the two stories are wrapped up in that chapter together. Right. Um, another thing you talk a lot about, which like most readers who know anything about this might identify this as a Southern problem is right. school desegregation. Um, and you argue that, you know, brown, uh, black Northerners saw a, uh, an opportunity 
in yep. Brown versus Board of Education in the North. But white Northerners did not see this at all. They, right. they, they saw this as applying strictly to the South. Um, and in particular, in this chapter, you, you kind of introduce in detail a, a theme which is sort of tear to the heart of many Americans, uh, although maybe arguably in a superficial sort of way, which is colorblindness. Right. And I, I wonder if you could talk about, you know, why did white Northerners pretty much utterly fail to see the applicability of Brown v. Board to their place in, right. in the United States? Uh, white Northerners, almost all of them, believe that Brown versus Board applied only to states that had a mandate of Jim Crow schools, which northern states didn't have any such mandate written into their, written into their law books. Mm-hmm. So they, they believe that Brown versus Board was meant only to root that out, which which we call de jure segregation, and that they thought that um, white Northerners thought that if there were segregated schools in northern cities, that those were just accidents of geography, that that's just because African Americans lived in certain neighborhoods, and so they went to their neighborhood schools, and whites lived in certain neighborhoods, they went to their neighborhood schools. But... Um, a serious look at, at the historical record shows that that's really false. Mm-hmm. That in cities like Boston, there was a long history of the school committee doing things like redistricting and rezoning and transferring students essentially to keep the white schools white and to keep the black schools black. And the school committee in Springfield, Mass, did the same thing. Um, they applied all these sorts of transfer policies and rezoning policies and and but still they claim that they were doing those practice that they're pursuing those practices without regard to race um, they you know the NAACP brought a lawsuit on behalf of black parents in Springfield in 1964 and the school committee members got on the witness stand one after the next and said that said, we didn't do that. They they said we we simply don't look at race when we assign students. So so our so our school system is therefore beyond the reach of of Brown. That's what they thought. Mm-hmm. How could they do that? And I, <laughs> so I, I'm I'm asking a question. I guess maybe right. you could you could say this is some kind of cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, how could they be practicing these things? And yet, believe what they were saying. And I, so, I want to bring this back to this concept of color blindness. Right. What did this concept allow Northern? Why was this such a popular idea? And why was it? Why did it have such a powerful hold on people in right. the Northeast? It was part of the Northern mystique. White Northerners wanted to think that they were colorblind. Um, they loved Martin Luther King's "I Have a Dream" speech, which talked about mm-hmm. the. the content of one, one's character rather than the color of one's skin. Um, and I say that colorblindness works both ways. On the one hand, this is what allowed white Northerners to vote for black candidates at the ballot box, that they would say, oh, I don't look at race, so they could vote for a black candidate. At the same time, they would say, you know, these school committee members in Springfield got on the witness stand and they said, you know, we drew this line um, 
at a certain place on Roosevelt Avenue, which was one street in Springfield. That was sort of a dividing line between white and black neighborhoods. And they said, we drew the line here, but it didn't have anything to do with with, with the race of the people who lived on one side of that line or another. And they, 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 they clung to that. They clung to that fiction. Um, and they really wanted to believe that, that that's, um, that that's what they were doing. And their the attorney for the city of Springfield said in his closing argument, um, the chapter, my chapter is called, if we were segregationists. And that was his argument. He said, if we were segregationists, you know, we would have drawn the line here and we would have enveloped the entire black neighborhood. But we're not segregationists because we only, you know, we only drew it here and, 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 and only encompassed a few black students. So he said, if we were segregationists, you know, we would have done X, Y, and Z. We would have been very blatant in our um, in our practices. And this was a hypothetical that to him was so far removed from reality uh, that that he couldn't believe it. Uh, uh, at the at, toward the end of that chapter, you uh, discuss a uh, a raid or a bust uh, of a lounge uh, called right. the Octagon. Uh, what happened at the Octagon, and why is this little episode uh, actually much more important than it would seem? There was uh, Octagon Lounge was in a black neighborhood of Springfield. And the police came in and they said they were called to the octagon because people were acting up. Um, and the um, African-Americans who were patrons at the lounge said that the police came by and started brutalizing people and brutalizing and arresting African-Americans. So immediately after that incident, the African-Americans in Springfield came up with a list of requests, one of which was that these officers be suspended. And the mayor of the city was a guy named Charlie Ryan, who was by all accounts a liberal and progressive mayor who had won who had won quite a bit of the votes in the African American neighborhoods. But Ryan said, you know, we can't we can't agree to that request to suspend the officers because that was mm-hmm. Uh, that would violate their due process and their police union rights and, and things like that. And so this this um, this controversy turned Springfield into something of a civil rights battleground, where yeah. uh, later in the summer you would have a you had a big uh, protest march in Springfield. Right. Yeah, I, I that that section resonated with me because, of course, now uh, right now we have. Uh, we're in the midst of a big controversy about, about police tactics, and we right. have uh, very liberal mayors in New York City right. and right here in Cleveland who are struggling with uh, police unions and police tactics um, and, right. and who also kind of find themselves caught in the middle about right. that today. Um, you know, uh, uh, as I said before, most of our listeners probably – they know who Jackie Robinson is, but there's another figure in this book who is – more important, a guy named Ed Brooke, uh, who is very important in this book. Um, who is Ed Brooke? Uh, and what did his, well, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you answer that. Question. <laughs> who, who is Ed Brooke and why is he important? Ed Brooke was the first African American to be popularly elected as a United States Senator. And he first won election to the U S Senate 
1966 mm-hmm. from Massachusetts, where at the time Massachusetts was 97% white and uh, 3% African American. Um, and Brooke, of course, was African American. Brooke was also a Republican, and he was mm-hmm. also a Protestant in a state that was overwhelmingly democratic and Catholic uh, and white. So I say that Brooke had something of a triple whammy going, um, but he, um, he had been the state's attorney general for two terms and the voters knew him well. And he ran a campaign, basically a campaign playing on, on the one hand, playing on the idea of colorblindness saying that he was just a candidate like anyone else. And on the other hand, he was playing on a can- he, he ran a campaign <laughs> that played on their heartstrings and said, you know, encourage white voters, you know, you can vote for an African-American. You know, Massachusetts has a great heritage in these issues. Mm-hmm. You can do it again. Uh, so Brooke won in 1966, and he was, and for a long time, he, he won in 1972. One time he was the only African-American ever to be reelected, and that was true until last month when Cory Booker was reelected mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Right. Why did why did white voters vote for Ed Brooke? I think a lot of them you know did did evaluate Brooke without regard to race. Brooke was, when Brooke was running campaigns, he was very careful to divorce his political campaigns from any issues about racial inequality or school segregation. So he said, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm running a campaign on the basis of what I've done as attorney general. Um, I'm not running a campaign uh, on the basis of the fact that I'm an African-American. And I think a lot of right. whites. And But, I mean, the irony is that it was 1966. I mean, this was where the white backlash had just become a known force in American yeah. life and American politics. And this was when uh, riots were exploding across cities of America. So it's not as mm-hmm. though, you know, so I don't think anyone looked at Ed Brooke and, and believe that race had nothing to do with anything. Um, so I think just as important as, as, as that colorblind campaign was Brooke's, ability to also sort of wink and hint and imply that this is Massachusetts home of the abolitionists and we're we're good enough to forge this kind of breakthrough at the same time. Right. So Ed Brooke was counting on the legendary smugness of Massachusetts voters. <laughs> In essence, yeah. Yeah, I mean he comes across as a pretty uh, you know, as a pretty savvy guy, a guy who could, you know, say, you know, a vote for me is a vote for a qualified guy at the same time he was winking and saying, well, but if you want to vote for me because I'm black and it makes you feel good, you can do that too. Uh, Yeah, one of his, I mean, early in the campaign, one of his slogans was proudly for Brooke. And so, you know, what does proudly for Brooke mean? It means means that, that we're proud to be the first to elect a black senator since Reconstruction, the first to ever, ever elect them popularly. Um, that slogan was the source of some controversy among Brooke and his staffers. One of his staffers said, you know, that's not really what, what we actually want to be saying here. Um, but 
it wasn't as it was and it wasn't. I mean, and, and Brooke, <laughs> Brooke knew how to toe that line. He knew how yeah. to um, he knew he knew how to affect that balancing act. And you know, that's the balancing act that so many African American politicians, Brooke, had had to toe and 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 had to become masters of when they were trying to get elected by a majority white population. Right. I mean, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a tough tightrope to walk because you could very easily just go over the edge and, and, and just kind of ruin the entire effect, I suppose. Right. Um, um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So one person you, you talk about as a, a kind of foil for Ed Brooke is uh, Shirley Chisholm. Uh, who's uh, you know another first in 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 a variety of ways, um, and you talk about Shirley Chisholm as a, a as a transitional figure, right? Uh, how is she such a figure? Right. Well, I think when a lot of people uh, think of Shirley Chisholm, at least certainly scholars in my field, they think of her bid for the presidency in 1972. And they think of her as a, um, a a proud activist for civil rights issues and also for women's issues. You mm-hmm. know? Um, and what I did was I focused on her first campaign for the U.S. Congress in 1968, where she was she was a foil for Brooke in some ways. First of all, she was running from a congressional district that had Bedford Stuyvesant at its heart. Yeah. So she was not running in a, first of all, she was not running in a statewide contest as Brooke was. Um, second of all, she's running in a, in a district with about half African-American voters. Um, but I, but I argue that she was running against another African-American candidate and the candidate who won the campaign would be the candidate who was best able to sell themselves, um, or best to appeal to the white population in that district. So she mm-hmm. actually didn't, you know, one thing she did was, was um, appeal to black voters and women voters. But the other thing she did was appeal to all these white ethnics, um, Jews in Williamsburg and Polish Catholics and Greenpoint um, and Italians and Bushwick. So part, so, 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 so the pitch of her campaign was at some times very similar, strikingly similar to Ed Brooks, as a sort of multiracial, uh, multiracial campaigner. Um, what I what I argue is that so that so that happened in 1968, and that's when yeah, you know, black power was really in ascendance, and it's also the year that the Ocean Hill Brownsville um, school crisis in Brooklyn. Yeah really brought blacks mm-hmm. and Jews to loggerheads and, 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 you know, poisonous, poisonous, divisive time in terms of race relations. And so I say that, that Chisholm represented sort of this last, um, this last symbol of multiracialism in New York and the Northeast while Ocean Hill Brownsville heralded this future anticipated this more divisive and poisonous future. And Chisholm sort of stood at the precipice of that transition from the old multiracial Northeast of the post-World War II years to the divisive Northeast of the 1970s and late 60s. 
Did did anybody see the whole Ocean Hill Brownside thing coming at all, or was this just a, a sort of a thunderclap between blacks and Jews? It's a good question. Um, I think the the level of hatred that it brought, I, I certainly unanticipated, but. You, I mean, there was also a long history of of, of um, tensions between black mm-hmm. and Jews, especially in New York City, in a place like a place like Harlem, where a lot of the shopkeepers were Jewish, yeah. and where the neighborhood was African American. So, so um, you know, there was a history of tensions to play upon, but there also had been a a genuine history of interracialism between these groups. You know, often it was Jewish volunteers who would go to the south. Uh, and march mm-hmm. for civil rights in the South. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that 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 level of of hatred and um, rage in '68 was a little bit unanticipated. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've mentioned uh, the sort of white backlash that uh, begins in the mid '60s. Um, I always show the first scene from the film Dirty Harry when I want to illustrate the backlash uh, when Harry just shoots all these African-American bank robbers in San Francisco. Um, And one of the people who ran just face first into this backlash was a guy named Abraham Ribicoff, who uh, had a very definite vision for what he wanted the North to look like. Um, uh, you know, a very progressive guy uh, in an era of this backlash, but he ended up becoming sort of a hero to the conservative South. Right. Um, what's the background? What's the backstory there? <laughs> it's a fascinating backstory. This is um, the winter of 1969-70. Senator John Stennis. Dennis, who was a Mississippi segregationist, a longtime segregationist, mm-hmm. occupied his winter days by entering into the congressional records <laughs> um, the segregation statistics for northern schools. You know, he would enter one city after another. And then Stennis tacked an amendment onto a routine school funding bill. And the Stennis amendment said that school integration measures had to be uniform across the country. So that if, so that whatever the Senate wanted to, um, whatever policy it wanted to enact for Southern school integration, it would have to enact that same policy for Northern schools. Yeah. And for Senate, this was just a ploy. It was just a ruse. He thought that if Northerners had to do that for their cities, that they would lay off. And so he was trying to halt integration measures. Mm-hmm. But um, Abraham Ribicoff who was a Connecticut senator, he saw this as an opening, as a way to bring attention to the problem of integration and racism in the North. And in February 1970, Ribicoff made a speech in favor of the Stennis Amendment, and he said, uh, he said, the North is guilty of monumental hypocrisy in its treatment of the black man. And so Ribicoff, this little Jew from New England, mm-hmm came out in favor of the Stennis Amendment. Um, and he was, as you say, he was praised by Southern conservatives. Um, right. And he was also hailed as a hero by Southern newspapers and by 
sort of ordinary white Southerners. They all sent mm-hmm. them this loving, ma- worshiping mail. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the Richmond Times Dispatch. Uh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Drew a political cartoon with a statue of Ribicoff being built next to the, the statue of Robert E. Lee. So right. he was initially hailed as a hero. Um, that was until they got wind of his actual plan. Where mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> a year later in 71, Ribicoff proposed a plan that would actually desegregate every school. And Southerners said, hang on a second. Um, he's not our hero anymore. Mm-hmm. How did Ribicoff's plan play back home in Connecticut? There was mixed reaction among white Northerners. Um, you know, when his initial speech came out in 1970, white Northerners were also divided. Some of them said, "You know, yeah, we should face our we should face our own segregation problems at home," and other Northerners said, "Don't go along with the Stennis Amendment. That's just a ruse. You know, how how mm-hmm. could you get taken in by that?" Um, so then when Ribicoff came up with the forceful plan in 71, um, some of those who had previously criticized him now now came around and said, you know, look, look, he's actually putting his money where his mouth is. It's not just the Stennis Amendment. This is a yeah. kind of thing. And then other Northerners thought, you know, they saw in his, they, they thought they saw in his plan a big school busing plan or, you know, the kind of, widespread program that would wrest white children away from their neighborhood schools and, and, and yeah. some white northerners got very scared. Yeah. I mean, all, all the figures we've been talking about, you know, Ribicoff, Chisholm, Ed Brook, um, these are all perfectly respectable people. Uh, you know, they're, they're not, they're, they don't want to burn down the house, you know, they, uh, but to what extent do you think that these people became tarnished in the eyes of many ordinary northerners by what was going on, you know, in the streets by you know, the, the counterculture, the more radical aspects of uh, the, the, the broad civil rights movement. If you include in that the anti-war movement, uh, the, the counterculture, the environmental movement. So to what extent did maybe yeah, to what extent- ordinary white northerners perceive yeah, because uh, these are, you know, Ribicoff, Chisholm, Ed Brooke. I mean, yeah. even Ed Brooke is a sort of on the liberal Republican spectrum. Yeah. To what extent were these people, you know, despite their perfectly mainstream respectability, you know, attitudes, to what extent were they identified by some Northerners with the, the sort of scary counterculture? Yeah. Well, people, I mean, Brooke, for instance, was very cap- was very careful to separate himself from a figure like Stokely Carmichael during mm-hmm. his campaign. You know, Carmichael came to Boston and gave fiery speeches, and 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 Brooke said, you know, that's not me. That's not what I'm about. Um, but there was this question whether the white voters would still associate someone like Brooke with with the black power message. And that was something that he was very cognizant trying to Mm -hmm. separate himself from. I think interestingly, Shirley Chisholm also separated herself from the black power movement when she uh, ran in the general election for a seat in the U S Congress. She ran against James Farmer Mm -hmm. who who himself had been on the quote unquote, you know, on the mainstream side of the civil rights movement. But by 1968, James Farmer was embracing black power and Shirley Chisholm was sort of the symbol of, uh, 
someone who would be, uh, I guess, non-black power at that time. Right. Um, but, but, you know, Chisholm, as the 70s unfolded, Chisholm became a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. And I think she was sort of a bridge between um, the sort of old school civil rights organizations and then the, the younger yeah. black power activists. Mm-hmm. If that answers. Well, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, one of the issues that really inflamed people uh, was busing, of course. And this is right. the uh, the one issue that really defies Ed Brooks' efforts to, you know, chart a middle class. And he eventually loses to uh, Paul Songus. Right. Um, why was busing uh, political poison? Yeah. Because white Americans think that their kids are entitled to go to the school closest to their home. Um, they think that's part of the public school system. And I think white Americans didn't see that if they didn't recognize that if black children had to also go to the school closest to their home, that they would, that the black children would in effect be confined to ghetto schools that were, that were under, underfunded and, and segregated. And the, the prospect that busing raised was that white kids would have to be bused into black neighborhoods and vice versa. And that was frightening, frightening to a lot of parents. Um, and frankly, they were outraged. By yeah. That idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, I was a, a teaching assistant for a guy named uh, Ron Formasano, mm-hmm. uh, who wrote who wrote a book called Boston Against Busing, and right. he actually used that book in class. And you know, I wondered, as I was trying to teach this book, that putting myself in the shoes of these parents, I wondered if I might not think the same thing. Right. That, you know, if my kids were being bused to a pretty rough neighborhood. 10, 15 miles away, I might ask those same questions. And I also wondered if, you know, given that, was there a way to manage? I mean, was there a way out of that crisis that yeah. could have placated or at least, you know, was there a, was there a, a yeah. way that, you know, otherwise could have been done? Or was this just an issue that there was no outlet? There, there were hundreds of ways for busing to be avoided. And the problem was that in effect, uh, white parents had resisted every other kind of measure for integration. And because mm-hmm. they resisted every other measure, it got to a point where a federal judge decided, okay, we've got we've to gotta, uh, just order it. We've got to force it down their throats. For instance, in Massachusetts, the state had passed a law in 1965 that was called the Racial Imbalance Act which was the first state law of its kind, and it said that you couldn't have segregated schools. Well, the Boston School Committee said, we don't really care about the Racial Imbalance Act. We're not going to integrate our schools. (laughs) They said that in 1965, and every year throughout the late 70s and early 70s, the Boston schools became more and more segregated. Um, And so... I think during those nine years between the passage of the act and the busing order, uh, which was ordered by federal judge Garrity in 74, between those nine years, the Boston school committee could have tried to implement something on a small scale. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they could have 
located the schools that that um, African American students uh, could have gone to, or they they could have tried to, to to build new schools, or tried some sort of small scale redistricting that would at least begin to alleviate the problem. But um, so the problem was that the white leaders of Boston uh, refused to do that because they thought they would get voted out of office by the white parents uh, who who refused to. Right. Oh, hello? Yep. Oh, I think I lost you there for a second. Okay. Just at the end. Um, one thing, I, I before we leave this chapter, uh, Joe Biden shows up in this chapter. Can you just uh, <laughs> describe? <laughs> he makes yep. a brief appearance. Uh, so w- what does Joe have to do with this? Well, I mean the vice president. Yeah. Well, the busing controversy was not only playing out on the streets of Boston, but also on Capitol Hill, where the House of Representatives, basically every year over the late 60s and early 70s, passed one bill or another designed to restrain school integration. Often these were anti-busing bills in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. But the Senate always turned back those bills. The Senate had a had a coterie of liberals who could stop anti-busing bills. Um, usually, the anti-busing bills would be put forward by different segregationists, for yeah. instance, Jesse Helms in 1975. So Helms would offer an anti-busing bill, and then someone like Ed Brooke would rally the liberal troops, and they would defeat the anti-busing bill. Um, but then, but Biden. Uh, so Biden enters the story in 1975 when he was a freshman senator from Delaware, and he was 32 years old. And Biden himself had previously shown a commitment to school desegregation, but his Delaware constituents uh, disagreed with that. So Biden quickly moved against busing, and Biden began to offer anti-busing amendments. And when Biden offered it, offered such amendments. He was a young liberal Democrat from Delaware rather than an mm-hmm. old segregationist from the Deep South. <laughs> when Biden offered the amendments, the Senate liberal block was not able to stop them. Yeah. Um, it, in, in essence, fractured that old block of liberals. So um, yeah. Biden led the anti-busing forces for, for a time uh, against yeah. people like Brooke and Jacob Javits and other sort of Northern, old school northern liberals. Mm-hmm. Uh, toward the end of your book, you turn to a couple of mayors. Uh, one who's probably, at least his name is probably well known, that's David Dinkins. Uh, the other one, uh, Thurman Miller of Milner of Hartford, Connecticut, is probably less known. Um, both of these candidates came into office with very high hopes. Uh, and I was particularly struck with the, the, I don't know if tragedy is the right word, but Thurman Milner, you know, uh, it, it came into office with such high hopes and it, it, his election sounded so uh, right. so good as a, a hairbringer for the blacks of Hartford. But the reality of his uh, mayorality was far grimmer. Uh, what, what happened uh, in Milner's Hartford? Well, Milner was elected in 1981, the first African-American mayor of any city in New England. And at that time, 
African Americans had just become, uh, well, whites had just gone into the minority of the city where you had about mm-hmm. half white and then African Americans and Puerto Ricans formed the rest of the population. And Milner ran a sort of multiracial campaign, as I've been talking about, like a lot of African American candidates. And he, would, he said he would be the mayor of all the city. And once he got into office, he also realized that, uh, you know, Hartford, uh, the racial minorities in Hartford were extremely poor. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Um, the index of poverty in Hartford was one of the highest uh, of any city in the country at that time. And Milner, you know, Milner tried some measures and bills where he would uh, pledge to hire black construction firms and make sure that more um, more black workers were hired by the city. He also tried to develop a program of linkage where where when when big businesses wanted to develop downtown, like downtown mm-hmm. Hartford is all owned by the insurance businesses, huge yeah. insurance businesses. Right. And but for instance, if they wanted to build more uh, office buildings that, you know, Milner wanted some sort of plans where local residents would also get to work in those new complexes. And he, you know, part of the problem was that the mayor didn't have much power in Hartford's specific setup yeah. uh, vis-a-vis the city council. But one of the other problems was just a, a systemic and structural one of, of um, black poverty in the inner cities and white residents fleeing to the suburbs and taking mm-hmm. their taking their tax dollars and their jobs with them out to the suburbs and leaving these further impoverished and weakened inner cities. And that's something that Milner simply wasn't able to devise a program to um, to root that out. And that was endemic to many northern cities during the 1980s when yeah. Milner served. Yeah, I remember you quote a, a an African American woman in that chapter who's just looking around at the, all this construction, all these you know glamorous looking high rises, and if you're just looking at that, Hartford looks great. But right. on the other hand, she's saying, where are the jobs? You know, right. where are we supposed to work uh, in these buildings? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, David Dinkins um, experienced. Uh, you know, I guess being the mayor of New York is, uh, to say the least, a unique a unique job. Uh, but but you know, he uh, struggled with some very unique things, one of whom was a person named uh, Rudolph Giuliani. Uh-huh. And another thing was, uh, you know, some some racial issues that really uh, challenged Dinkins to, to to mediate, especially tensions uh, between Korean grocers yep. and African-Americans, sort of hearkening back to the uh, the Jewish tensions that you mentioned that Shirley right. Chisholm had to deal with. Um how did Dinkins appeal to uh, white voters, and how was Giuliani, uh, the second time around, uh, eventually able to defeat him in 1993? Right. Dinkins was first elected in 1989, um, and his election occurred amid a backdrop of extreme, extremely vicious episodes of racial violence in New York City yep. in that year and even over a decade. So that year, you had the murder of Yusuf Hawkins in Bensonhurst. Yeah, the stopping death, right? Yeah. Yep. And um, before that, you had the Central Park jogger case. And we, mm-hmm. we now know that the the five 
um, teenagers convicted at the time. We now know that they were innocent of that particular crime. But at the moment, the the story was that these five racial minorities had um, had beaten a white jogger in Central Park, and so the city was um, was tearing apart in terms of racial tension and racial violence. And Dinkins in 1989 offered himself as the person who could tame those tensions, who could heal the city in effect. And he was running against Ed Koch in the Democratic mm-hmm. primary and. A lot of people in New York thought that Koch had stood idly by and allow those and allow those tensions to increase. And so Dinkins offered him to white voters. Dinkins offered himself as the one who could heal the city, and at the same time to uh, black voters, Dinkins offered himself as the one who could unify the the black community and and for once um, bring them a measure of of power and bring them a voice in City Hall. Um, and so that, that message was successful on election day, although it was in, in 89, it was an extremely close election between him and yeah. Giuliani, especially close given that the, the city had something like, um, three quarters registered Democrats at least. Right. Yeah. I think um, that the, the ratio you, in your book is five to one. Five to uh, one. So that was, yeah, very impressive. Yeah. So more than three to one. Yeah, so so Giuliani came very close, and that's because a lot of white Democrats voted for the Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, so the thing was that Dickens sold himself as a healer, um, and at the same time, there were these infamous, continuing infamous episodes of racial tensions under his watch. Yeah. And one, one of them that you mentioned was the boycott of Korean groceries in which African-Americans in Brooklyn boycotted those groceries and the black Asian tensions started to spiral and Dinkins effectively didn't do anything to try to mediate that dispute. Um, And then much more damaging to him was the Crown Heights riots, which was a, right. I mean, just a continuation of the black Jewish Mm -hmm. divisions. Yeah. Um, where this where an orthodox rabbi's um, caravan ran over a little black kid and right. killed him, mm-hmm. and then once some African Americans stabbed and killed an orthodox Jew, um, and then the all all hell broke loose in the neighborhood of Crown Heights, and it, uh, riots raged for a few days, and Dinkins was seen as was seen as basically. Um, not coming up with any way to, to to tame those tensions. So, so the very person who had who had appealed to the um, populace as one who could bring racial harmony to New York, well, now ever more racial tension was exploding. Yeah. Um, you know, in your in your conclusion, you uh, you observe uh, that you know, the North. Uh, and the entire country, I suppose, has you know been uh, unable to kind of fully turn the page of uh, racial progress. Uh, that you know, it seems like we take two steps forward, one steps back, or sometimes the opposite. You know, one step forward, two steps back. And you know, I I'm sure we all remember you know the election of uh, President Obama and the, the, the 
the great hopes that, that that what this might represent for racial progress in the United States. But you know, as we talk today, as I mentioned before, we are um, dealing with uh, a number of controversies regarding police. You know, regarding the deaths of uh, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, and and others, many others. Um, what? How does it look to you? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it looks pretty bleak from where I'm standing. Uh, so here you have a book that traces racial politics in the United right. States for just about 70 or so years. Um, why do you think progress has been so limited? Or would you would, – I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, do, do you right. see it as very limited? What's going on right now is – is sad and, and painful and sobering. Um, yeah, my, my book charts what was the battle between two traditions, racial, racial democracy and equality on the one hand, and then segregation and racism on the other. And um, with each unarmed black man that gets killed by the police, it looks like the latter tradition is unfortunately winning out. Um, so I think you're, you're not wrong to call this a, a, a bleak moment and a one that shows that American leaders have been unable to put into place equitable, uh, you know, a, a way to, to um, effectively, patrol minority neighborhoods without without killing the people that they're supposed to uh, be protecting. So I would still argue that the country and the north however you want to see it can can still draw on its better angels if it if it wants to. I mean it it can find a way to combat the the problem and put a put some forceful policies into place but the the time is running out um um, but, you know, it, it gives one hope that Americans aren't standing, standing idly by and that they're protesting and demonstrating um, to today. All the school students in Boston, I see them at the state house rather than at school and demonstrating. <laughs> so so uh, taking seriously the freedom to protest and hoping that something comes, um, comes of it. So I would... Um, I would be doggedly hopeful, though. Though I wouldn't want to uh, <laughs> pretend as though we're we're at some. Uh, right. You know, I wouldn't want to downplay the the real horrible episodes that have unfolded in our streets the last mm-hmm. several months. So, uh, Jason Sokol, we've taken up an hour of your life, uh, so I'm going to let you go after one last question, and that is. Uh, I, I know this might sound perverse, given that you just published this brand new book. But what's next? Uh, thinking of, of writing a book on how Americans experience the death of Martin Luther King. Ah, so sort of a social history of the assassination. Oh, excellent! All right, we'll be back in touch in a few years then. Um, uh, Jason Sokol, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in American Studies. Thank you. My pleasure. Yep.
So once again, this is Dan Kilbride from John Carroll University and New Books in American Studies. We've been speaking with Jason Sokol about his book, All Eyes Are Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, The Conflicted Soul of the Northeast. And as you look on your screen on the New Books site, you will see a link to this uh, to this title on Amazon. So uh, let's go throw some royalties Jason's way. Uh, we'll see you in a little while with another book. Thanks so much.